Boy, uh, one of my former pastors used to say, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet, right? Man, praise God, uh, being brought to his throne in worship, and such an encouragement already. If you would please turn to Acts chapter 9, and uh, we're going to continue. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we are considering the movement of the church in the first century and looking at implications of that for us. And let's begin there. Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 32 says, Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became came known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And it was that he stayed, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for this honor, God, that we have to worship you. To be reminded again and again that you're faithful. God, to be reminded that you are, uh, you've conquered death to be reminded that you're alive and that you ever live to make intercession for us. God, we're reminded that you are worthy of our worship, that you're holy. God, we're reminded that you're great and greatly to be praised. And, Father, we thank you for the Bible and thank you for the accurate record that it gives us of your behavior among people in, in the past and your commitment to us in our own days and we pray that you'll open it by your spirit as we look into these verses and we think about these truths and we pray that you'll commit uh, help us as we commit ourselves to listen to be attentive God work by your spirit we pray and we ask it in Christ's name amen well this uh, the passage that we've read today it reminds us of one of the simplest and most uh, profound truths in Scripture. In John 3.16, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the passage that we read shows us that, that the love of God was what compelled the disciples to leave Jerusalem. That in persecution, right? We saw earlier that they were persecuted in the Uh, circumstances that they were in were important in helping them to be obedient to what Jesus had already said to them. And so they went everywhere, and as they went, they took this message of 
hope and salvation and rescue and pardon in Jesus with them. And his love for people, the love of God in Christ for us humans is the story behind the movement of the church as we follow it in Acts. And so when you read Acts, that is really what you see is a church that's on the move. We don't see a a group of people that are static. When they are static, things happen that move them out into mission to the world around them. The church, when we think about what it is, you know, I've thought about this a lot, the church is a movement. Always, that's what it was because it's animated by God and by His Holy Spirit. So the church is always intended by God, not just to be a place where we come and sit and soak and listen, but a place where we're sent consequently into the world with the good news and the hope that comes in Jesus, the goodness that you got and I got in Jesus. God says, I want you to take that as missionaries and representatives of me out into this world where you live. It was an as-you-are-going movement. That's what Jesus said to the people in Matthew 28 where it's recorded that Jesus said, as you go into this world, he said, you're witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see in this passage is that that movement of the gospel is starting to occur and it's left Jerusalem and it already had gone to Samaria and we saw how it went uh, outside into a uh, uh, desert place where Philip took the gospel to an Ethiopian and the Ethiopian is left now and has gone back into Africa with the gospel and the gospel in the time of the disciples is spreading rapidly in that first century world. It was a movement and it still is intended by God to be exactly that. And I read about the narrative like this and you see first a, a healing that occurs, a man who's been paralyzed for eight years the Bible says is healed he's raised up Peter comes just says to him you know take up your bed the same thing he had experienced with Jesus when Jesus healed and we see that and then we see that he goes to a place where the circumstances are even more dire where someone who has been tremendously loved and made an impact on people through her life has died has become sick and died And Peter goes to that place, and through him, Jesus is able to, and he makes it plain, doesn't he, in what he says. He says, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, he says, heal you. He doesn't say Peter heals you, does he? He says, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is is present to heal. And we think about that. I heard, I've been listening to a podcast for a while, and they talk about the Jesus, Jesus meteor is the way they put it. They're like, when Jesus came in the first century, there was an imprint, an impact. That still now, we're 2,000 years out from that. That meteor has made an impact, an impression in the world. And I I think about the experience of the apostles and how we see these events and how we process this uh, resurrection is what it is, a resurrection. And I think about their experience, it reminds me a little bit of marriage. You know how marriage starts out, like the church's experience? And really, to some extent, I think our experience as followers of Jesus, it, um, it starts out in a warm glow in a honeymoon. That's what marriage is like. And it doesn't settle into something, I hope, that's mere duty, right? 
just doldrum, but it eventually settles into a working out of promises. That's what marriage becomes. You know, I don't want to undersell that to anybody because like Parker and Megan are getting married next week. It, it, it does have the warm glow and the romance, you know, as, as we work it into that. But also what we experience across time. We went yesterday to Augusta. My sister and brother-in-law have been married 45 years. And I remember their wedding, you know, in Augusta, going to their wedding as a eighth, ninth or 10th grade or whatever it was. You know, I remember their, their wedding 45 years. And, I, and you think about that, the working out of commitment and promises. And so when the Jesus meteor hit and when Jesus was there in the first century in person, God become human living among people, there were exactly the kinds of events occurring that you would expect when God entered human history. And and then the word of God is being verified through the apostles in the first century. And I think about the, that experience, okay, this warm glow, this honeymoon sort of experience that is given witness to Jesus' arrival in the dawn of salvation. But Christian faith isn't always blazing ecstasy. You know, eventually what it becomes is the working out of the promises that we make in obedience as his followers. And so it's wonderful. I remember, you know, the first year or so of our after our profession of faith, our baptism together as young 24-year-olds, and our experience among the people of God, it's almost like God does build this sort of protection and experience that, you know, is heartening. And then after a while, you begin to realize that it takes more than that to sustain it. And that's all I'm saying, that when we see this among these people, they have experiences that fortify the reality of Christ. And then they get down to business. They begin to obey him as his witnesses and as worshipers as they go into the world. So Christian faith for them is, I, I, th- I read this passage and, and I think, I have never had the experience of raising someone from the dead. I haven't. I don't know anybody else. I know a lot of people in ministry. I don't know anybody that's ever raised someone from the dead. I look at this passage and I think it would be an incredible marketing strategy, apparently. You know, because it says, what? The, first of all, Peter raises a paralytic up and what happens? The church grows, right? People hear about it, the church grows. They raise this guy from the dead in Joppa. The church grows. It would be a great marketing strategy, but it's outside of my own experience to have that happen. But I think about us as the people of God, and what is it that gives extraordinary evidence to God's existence now? What is it in you and me currently that is accessible to us, that's available to us, that gives you know powerful evidence to God's reality? And that's what I wanted to think about in this passage because we observe it in these people who make up the family of God in the first century. And one I, I see in this passage is that within your grasp, within mine, even though you, you, know, you and I probably won't heal, heal paralytics, we, we, I don't think we'll raise people from the dead, but we can minister to other people when their life is hard. 
And that's what we see in this passage of Scripture, you know, is that their antenna are up to people in need, and there's an impact as a result of that. And that's within your grasp, right? It's within my grasp to be able to pay attention to the lives of the people that God puts around us. Peter and others are aware of those needs, and they walk in the world as God's hands and feet. That's what they do. You know, my wife and I were talking about the shared experiences that people have sometimes of, you know, where does empathy come from? Where does the ability to be aware come from? Sometimes it comes because you have had something happen, maybe something devastating. Or maybe like, you know, my sister, who I consider to be one of my best friends in the world, cancer, you know, who's gone through that. So automatically her heart goes out to people who have had cancer or addiction in family systems. You know, sometimes we gravitate to people who have had like experiences, underdogs. I gravitate to people who have experienced childhood abuse as a person who experienced, not through my parents, but through a family member. Abuse as a kid. It creates within us an ability to empathize. To, to relate and to care and to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who may go through something like we've gone through. Well, J. Vernon McGee, who was one of the first Bible preachers I ever listened to, called it putting shoe leather on the gospel. That's the way he put it. You know, it's, it, it makes the gospel practical. I, I'll be the first to admit I'm task-oriented. It's the way I am. Getting stuff done is on the front burner for me. And as I say, my wounds from early life sometimes honestly make me a little numb to the suffering of other people. As I assess myself, that's who I am. But I also realize that I have to try really hard to overcome that to be available to other people. And God makes us, and then we, we have experiences that are going to shape us, but we're, he made us to have an impact with people. There's a joke about Moses. We've been reading uh, through Genesis and Exodus, and we're in Exodus 38 or so right now. And you read about Moses that he had 600,000 plus men, it says, that he, which means it was over a million people that left Egypt. And that the, it says at one point his father-in-law comes out to him and he finds Moses sitting, listening to their complaints from sunup to sundown. And he's like, what are you doing? And, and he tells Moses that you need to delegate this responsibility. You are on the fast track to burnout if you keep trying to do what you're doing. But the joke is that Moses was like, this would be a really easy job if it weren't for all these people, you know. And that's how we think sometimes, you know, about our life. But our lives as followers of Jesus are about people. When the Bible says God so loved the world, it doesn't mean the globe, right? I mean, I assume he loves it too, but it's talking about humans, human beings, people who populate the world. That's where our ministry takes place. That's where our spiritual antenna have to be up. 
is to be sensitive and aware that God wants to use us to make a difference in the lives of people. And that's what you see in the passage here is that, you know, Peter ends up in places because people have cared about other people and they're connecting them to help and to hope. And, hey, we can do that, right? We can do that. But the passage shows us also that we can be extraordinarily kind and generous in small ways. The, there's a person in this story called Tabitha and uh, also Dorcas, which is the Greek rendering of that name, and it meant gazelle. That was what both names meant in different languages. She left an imprint by her graceful acts of kindness to the poor and to widows. That's what you see in this passage, to the poor and to the widows. And many translations, when they talk about charitable deeds, they make it plain that, yeah, she had a heart for the poor. Other translations emphasize that and make it clear. The first description, though, that you see about her in the passage is that she's called a certain disciple. There was a certain disciple. The word disciple identifies her as belonging to the Christian community. She was a part of the family of God, a follower, a learner, you know, as we'll see. Her willingness to use her ability because she made, it says, garments, tunics, right, clothing for other people, which seems like a simple enough thing if you're, you know, that's within your ability to do. But she did it for the glory of Christ. She made what she had available uh, a means of loving other people and being kind to people. She took what was in her hand and used it to make Christ known in her kindness. And it was she did it because of her identity in Christ, a certain disciple. In other words, it's telling you this is what she did, and it came from who she was, her identity in Jesus. In Christ, we are moved to become people who live outside ourselves and don't just see our own needs, but see the needs of other people. It's what he does. It's the transformation. We think about transformation that occurs and discipleship that happens. What it means is that God takes the old self-focused person and he turns us into others-focused people too, not only focusing on ourselves and caring about ourselves, which is okay, you know, the Bible says, love your neighbor how? As you, as you love yourself. I do love me, and I try to take care of me, but if all I think about is Bobby and his needs, then I have not become useful to the kingdom of God. You know, he wants to use us in connection to the people around us. And, and admittedly, sometimes people will drain our compassion buckets. I noticed that I used to be involved in this ministry that had a um, a food pantry and it was a hub for a lot of other churches and you know I just noticed sometimes that there would be people that you would never be able to do enough for you know they would drain your compassion bucket and you know we learned you had to exercise discretion sometimes because you don't want to enable. But Jesus doesn't talk a lot about enabling in the Bible, does he, when he talks about helping people? I mean, I know we need to exercise compassion, and I know we need to exercise discretion, but here's what Jesus said when you look at the words of Jesus about caring for the poor. 
Matthew 25, he says that at the judgment, that the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. He says the sheep are going to be on the right hand, the goats on the left. And he says, what distinguishes the sheep from the goats? He says that you saw me hungry, right? You saw me hungry and you fed me. You saw me naked and you clothed me. You you saw me a stranger and you took me in, Jesus says. You saw me sick and you came to me. You saw me in prison and you helped me. You came to me. And you remember what the sheep say? When? When did we ever do that? Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying that. How do you know you're a follower of mine? He's not saying this is how you become a follower of mine. That's by grace and through faith. It's by trusting that his sacrifice paid the price for our sin. But he's saying the way that we know that we belong to him is that we have hearts that are stimulated to kindness and compassion. He transforms us. He creates within us a sensitivity and a desire to be like him. And he says, this is what I'm like. You want to know what I'm like? That's what I'm like. So when we read the, real, the whole account, it's sobering. It is to read that account and to see that what Jesus says is like, do you want to perform a test on your discipleship? He's like, take a look at your heart. Take a look and see what it, what the difference that it makes and the way that you perceive people. Because everybody on the list that Jesus gave are the people that we tend to do what? Judge. Push, push your side. We think about all the things that he, he says. He, he says, look, this is where your tenderness and concern come to bear. And when they're absent, he says, it should be alarming to us. So that's when I think, like, how do we take what is accessible to us and make it so that the gospel looks extraordinary and real to people around us? That's what the scripture shows us, kindness in small ways. This is what the king says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then in the passage, we we can take seriously the call to be saints and disciples because that's the identifying marker that he, the passage shows us about these people. When you read the narrative, you see that they came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda or Lydda. And it, it, they found a certain disciple there named Tabitha, Dorcas. These, this is the people that are in the story that we're seeing. So this account calls people saints and disciples. Saints derives from the word for holy or holiness in the Bible. A saint is, you, you know, when we hear, hear the word, like a lot of people will say, well, I'm no saint, you know, by which they mean, you know, my character and behavior doesn't align with your perception of a good person all the time. But when the Bible says you're a saint, it means that positionally, God recognizes you as holy because of Jesus. That's one of the things that it means. You know, saint is working out also practically 
but it does, you know, it comes from the idea that we're pronounced holy because, and I, okay, that's comforting to me. It's comforting to me that a saint is the way God sees me in Christ. He, he sees me through Jesus' finished work, his forgiveness, his pardon. So consequently, he says about you, if you know Jesus, you are a saint, even if you're too humble, you know, to describe yourself that way. But they, these are the reasons why, as you look at Scripture. Our citizenship is in heaven. It says, from, we, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to God, I already, my final address, if I know Jesus, if he has become my Savior, and I'm waiting for him, my final address is already determined. My citizenship is in heaven. So it's it's plays into this idea of what it means to be a saint according to the Bible. The scripture says in Ephesians 2, 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the Bible says it's not only true of us that our ultimate destiny is to be with God, it's also true of us that he says right now I recognize you as belonging to, to me and with me. So... When you think about a saint, what is it? How, how do we understand what the Bible means when it calls these people that? Then in Colossians, the, this is the passage Jonathan read earlier, I think. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Translated, some translations will say, he's put us into the kingdom of his son. He, ta- he took us out of darkness and he placed us into by this transfer that happens because of grace and because of the cross. Because Jesus was willing to come here and take our place and to become a substitute and to sacrifice himself, shed his blood, the innocent one, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's what the Bible says the reality is of what Christ has already done on our Behalf. And so he takes us out of darkness and alienation. He puts us into light and into the kingdom of his son. And he, he sees us as if all of these things are true of us, which again, that's such a comfort to me when I can think on that. Jesus in another place says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's in, in the an event that the disciples have been sent out on mission. And they come back and they're given this report of how the demons are subject to them. Jesus says, I'm telling you, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you only, but that your names are written in heaven, that you belong to God's family by faith. That's what it means to be a saint, that God takes ridiculous people like us, people who could never think of themselves as saints, and he says, nope, that's who you are according to me. And then we work that out practically in our experience. Saints, both characteristic of people who are following Jesus and the pronouncement of, of what salvation does for us, but also disciples in the passage. We're learners the scripture says a disciple, that's what it, how it defines these people. That was what they, the Bible says was true about them. How did they know when they came here? They were disciples. They were learners. People that believed and internalized truth and practiced it as a way of life. 
The early Christians were connected to each other and were listening and applying God's revealed truth so that they might live it out in all of life's circumstances. That's what discipleship means. It's not enough to know, you know, a bunch of truths and facts. That's the starting place. But as we go on, it's about when I wake up and I live with people in my family and work and all the places and things that we're committed to, fleshing out the way of Jesus with other humans. That's discipleship. Living it out in a way that it's clear that I'm a follower of his and not a hypocrite. Although all of us would acknowledge there's some degree of hypocrisy in us too. But our following of Jesus is working it out so that there's less and less hypocrisy and more and more truth. More and more practice. More and more the image of Jesus being reflected through through how we are. More and more repentance when we realize that the way we've been isn't the way that God is. And that's discipleship. It's always coming to the, the standard of his, his character and life. And like we've been talking about in our small group study on Sunday mornings, the fact that because truth is revealed, we know what, we know what God is like. And we know what he tells us that our lives should be like too and what we should be characterized by. So these people are people who are maturing in faith and that always requires deliberate behavior and thoughtfulness. Paul described discipleship this way as he wrote to Timothy. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. He says, this is the ideal for what discipleship means. He's like, you heard me say these things. You take them to heart, teach them to others. And when that's what life looks like in Christian community, the possibility of growth and maturity is always going to be present. Because we've availed ourselves to people. We listen to them. This is what my the church that Frankie and I came to faith in Christ in, in Augusta did so well is that they were very intentional in trying to put you in position to learn from other people and then to take what you are learning and practice it really quickly. They didn't wait. They were like, go do this now. And you found your fit that way. It's like I ended up teaching a young adult Sunday school class when I couldn't pronounce half the words I was reading. Because they were like, we need somebody to teach this Sunday school class and you seem like you love Jesus and you're trying to grow. And they put you in there and you started doing it and you learned how to do it. And of course that's only in the, but this is a big important thing, the, what the body of Christ looks like and how it works out in practice. Because we're taking the stuff here and we're internalizing it and then we're living it out in the world. And trying to get other people to do it too, right? Isn't that the desire that we have because that's what Jesus came to do is rescue everybody? So we want to be part of what he's doing. And discipleship is never accidental. It's always deliberate and intentional and paying attention and, and acknowledging when we don't get it right. Having the humility to say, I failed. Forgive me sometimes to other people. Forgive me. I didn't get it right. Because we're trying to help community be what God wants it to be. And community not just here but everywhere. Sometimes discipleship is just showing up and doing, giving God our yes again and again and again. 
going, yeah, it's going to inconvenience me, but yes. Because our lives are, also our identity is that we're servants. And, and servants are people who say yes. Servants say yes because they have no choice, right? But Jesus says, you know, I've called you friends. You are my friends, but you're also servants. And so a servant is someone who just gives God their yes. I don't mean like you should never have any margin in your life or anything. I have I saw someone this week say, you know, do everything. And I'm like, I don't want to do everything. I don't want to do everything. I want to do some things that I feel like God is leading me to do, but I don't want to try to do everything because I have limits. But I do want to do the most important things that God says, this is what I want out of you for your life. In the spaces that you're in with the people who have needs. So we, we see that we can think on saints and disciples and we can be make an extraordinary impression on the world by doing that. We can take the gospel seriously. They, that's what we see in the story. Think about the, the places. That, you know, a lot of times the Bible has given us detailed information for reasons. And Joppa, where else do you hear about Joppa in the Bible? Do you remember? Who went to Joppa? How about Jonah? You remember Jonah? That's, this is the seaport where Jonah goes and boards a boat to do what? Run from God, right? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He says, nope, I'm going to go as far away from Nineveh as I can go. So he boards a boat, and we know how that plays out for Jonah. And it, it, here it becomes a site for the spread of Christianity. And instead of people saying no to God, here are people saying yes to God. Jonah's known for, for running from God's assignment. They, these people were running to God's assignment. And God was using their crisis and mir the, the miracles that followed crisis to bring people to faith in Christ. And one of my favorite movies, You've Got Mail. One of my, that's one of my favorites. Because Tom Hanks usually is going to do a pretty good job whatever he's doing, whether he's Woody or whoever he is in a movie. But in that movie, there's a scene where some people are stuck in an elevator. And it doesn't last very long, but long enough for them to start reflecting. And one person says, if I ever get off of this thing, I'm going to propose to my fiancé. And another person is like, well, if I ever get off of this thing, I'm going to start speaking to my mother again. But it's a mini-crisis that became import, an important turning point for everybody that was in the elevator. And in a, in a sense, when I read this, I thought about this is what God uses sometimes crisis in people's lives to do is it becomes a turning point, an opportunity for change and hope. And so the people around that are affected by these healings, God has a deeper intent, and that is that more and more people will believe on Jesus and know Jesus and be transformed by Jesus. And so in the end, what will matter more than anything else is what we did about Jesus. That will be what matters more than anything else in life. Who did we say Jesus is? What did we do in relationship to the truth we discovered about his 
sacrifice for us on a cross, his resurrection from the tomb. What did we do? How did we respond? Did we yield? Did we say yes there? So we can be, here here I think are the two questions. Did we take the gospel seriously enough to share it? Did we take the gospel seriously enough to believe it ourselves? And then the passage, I think, shows us another way God can use our lives just in the same way he was using theirs. We can push through unhelpful barriers. We can advocate for people outside of our preferences. And the passage shows Peter staying at the home. The last verse, verse 32, or verse 43, Peter is staying at the home of a man named Simon also, who is a tanner by vocation. And we're going to look at the story of how God is overlapping and showing us the uh, advance of the gospel mission to the non-Jewish world here. But Peter himself has a, a lot of baggage, religious baggage, that God is uh, chipping away at. So he ends up in the home of Simon, and Simon is a man whose trade made him uh ritually unclean in the lives of some people because he handled dead things. That was often a religious no-no. It often meant there were periods of time that had to go by before people could have commerce with you again. But his whole commerce was handling dead things. And so he uh, would take the skins of animals and dye them. That's what he did. And it stunk what he did. Literally, it stunk. And so Peter goes and stays with him. His trade was considered so terrible that in some of the rabbinic law, they would give the wife of a tanner permission to divorce him if she just couldn't stand the stench of his trade. Like, okay, we get it. You can't handle it anymore. And that's where Peter goes and he stays with this guy. And you can see that really it is a hinge to to what's coming up in the next uh, part of Acts where he has an interaction with the Roman officer and it becomes a very strategic part of how God is advancing his mission globally. A lot of static followed when Peter has this interaction with the Roman that we see and then Peter and the other disciples begin to proclaim the gospel to non-Jews. It becomes, uh, conflict happens. Acts 15 is a record of their the way they work through that conflict to glorify God. But the good news is that the good news is for anybody. God comes to everybody where they are, and his intent is always to bring all people to himself. And this is how he said it in the very beginning to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, I will, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the barriers that they faced were ethnic and religious. They're like everybody else except for the Jews, we're suspicious of, we're not sure God's love and grace is for you. That's how they that's what they were wrestling with. What it meant to be this special people of God. And it was religious. It was, God was dismantling wrong ideas, and in their place he was giving them right, right understanding that he had come in Jesus to be the Savior of everyone. For God so loved 
the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Acts is showing us how God is strategically advancing the gospel. It's a movement that God is, has committed to in the world. He uses the church. The church is the way that God is advancing his mission in the world. And he will do that if we mostly will just get out of his way. If we just get out of his way and say yes to, to what God is trying to do, he will bless the world with the good news that he has changed your life hopefully through. Christianity is, uh, uh, when it strays from the idea of being a movement, becomes something stuck and unhelpful. Becomes something dead and so we, we see in the passage physical healing, resurrection may be outside our experience, outside of my experience, but kindness and generosity and service are not. Those are things that are accessible. God's grace will always be relevant. We think sometimes we read the Bible and I'm like, how do I make this relevant to me? Grace is always relevant because every single person in the world that you are going to meet needs it needs the grace of God, needs to know that God loves them, needs to know that God already sent his son to take care of the biggest problem that they will ever have. Everybody, the people in this story lived so admirably, didn't they? When you read this story, you're impressed with how these people were living. They lived admirably. Dorcas dies. These people are so heartbroken that the first impulse they have is like, we heard Peter is like, as far as from here to the other side of Pooler away. And, of course, they, they went there on donkeys or feet or whatever. But they're like, let's go get Peter. And what we know had to be in their heart is possibly this person that we love so much and we can't live without, we're, we can get back. And they lived so well. They couldn't, she lived so well, they couldn't stand to live without her. That's admirable when we think about our lives. The Christian movement today has every possibility of, of, of giving extraordinary evidence of God's reality but the question is will we will we be part of giving evidence of God's reality by God's grace we can that's the truth any of us can decide yep I want to be a part of a movement that takes God's grace and kindness and compassion truth to all the people who need it, which is everybody. I want to pray for us, and we'll have a time of commitment And the way we conclude our services with the song. It is a time for a commitment. And as you listen, I always know that there's a mixed audience. It may be today as you listen, you have never trusted Jesus to be your Savior. You already heard that God loved you so much he gave his son for you today. And the, the scripture teaches that Jesus was resurrected to life so that we could belong to him and become part of his family through faith. And we do that through surrender and repentance. We just acknowledge that what the Bible says about us is true. That is that the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous, not even one. And that the only uh, hope for us is to trust the provision that God made in sending Jesus for us. And so we're going to stand in a moment as we sing. That may be the need you have to respond or there may be some other way that you want to follow up. And I'll certainly pray with you during these moments as we have this closing song. Would you stand with me?
Father, we're grateful to you today for the truth of the Bible and how it shows us that the gospel means that we're to be a different kind of people in the world that you've put us in. And God, we know that sometimes if we're honest, our hearts can be characterized by hostility and selfishness and anger and we can be full of resentment and there are all kinds of impediments that will allow to creep into our heart that keep us from looking at people and understanding them the way that you did when you sent your son for us but God we pray that you'll help us daily to sweep those things away to trust you God to allow you to become through us Jesus Christ to the people in this world who so much need to know that there's mercy and forgiveness and grace in you and kindness in you. And we pray that you'll help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.